Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor author and property investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. Now, I want to start this podcast by making a bit of an apology, actually. And if you've met me, you'll think, oh, this is just so typical of Peter, because he's so laid back and maybe getting on a bit, but you're not allowed to say that or think it. Here's the thing. I've been asking you to get in touch by Messenger and Facebook and stuff, and quite a few of you have. But I've realised, I don't know how this has happened, whether I've got fat thumbs. It might be something to do with the settings on my phone, to be honest. That's, my, that's what I'm thinking. I'm blaming my phone. But I know that there's been some messages which have come through, and I've looked at them and I've thought, that's interesting, yeah, I'll keep that one. When I've gone to retrieve it, it's just disappeared into cyberspace, and I've got no idea where it's gone. So if you've messaged me over the last couple of months and I haven't got back to you, there is a chance that I've actually just lost your message, for which I apologise. So let's not do this anymore. I've thought of a new way for you to contact me, which is the old way of contacting me. Go on to the Progressive Property Facebook group, if you have a comment or a question, or if you particularly have an idea for a podcast which you think would help everybody, put a post up, tag me in, and then I'm going to see it and it's going to be there forever and we can keep referring back to it. So anyway, many, many apologies. Don't know what it is. I take full responsibility. I'm just a bit of a numpty when it comes to the techie stuff. But hopefully we can still be friends and you'll still listen to my podcast. Now, having said that, though, respectfully, I've got to make a little request because a lot of people have been sending in very personal questions about their own property journey, which I fully understand. But I'm sure you appreciate that because I'm doing the podcast, I get hundreds of messages every week from all sorts of people, all wanting help and different ideas and stuff. And unfortunately, I cannot answer them all. And I can't really give one-on-one -on -one private mentoring to everybody who emails me or messages me. So I'm ever so sorry about that. If you have any ideas, though, for podcasts which are going to help everybody, then do let me know. So I hope that's OK. Hope I haven't offended anybody, but I'm sure you understand. But I'll tell you what I've been doing. I've been going through the messages which I can find, and I've been looking at the questions, and there's some great questions, and I've picked out a few questions which I think, if I answer them, hopefully they're going to help everybody. So the first question comes from Suresh Bansal. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing your names properly. If I'm not, again, I'm not trying to offend you, but that's how it looked on the, on the email. Suresh Banzal. So, Suresh, thank you ever so much. And here's what he says. He says, hi, Peter. Thank you for a really interesting and insightful podcast on BMV. Thank you very much. Always good to hear. It was appreciated. He goes on to say, I was wondering if you'd consider doing a follow-up to this one on how to refinance and buy to build your portfolio as quick as you can in the current market. I think you have to hold on to your property for six months before you can refinance. Not sure of this. Is this still the case? Now, this is a great question. It's actually a really big question. And Suresh probably doesn't realize that he's unearthed a few things there, which he may not even have realized, actually, which we probably need to think about if we're going to answer that question. So let's get down to the number of it. Refinancing deals quickly. How do we do that? Well, the model which we teach at Progressive, the model which I've used to build my portfolio, the model which I know Rob and Mark used to build their portfolio, 
when you look at other trainers, Anne Holton, David Siegler, people like that, all use the same model, is the buy, refurbish and refinance model. So how does that work? Well, very simply put, buy a property, preferably buy the property cheap, in other words, below market value, and we can have a really good semantic argument about what below market value actually really means, but we're essentially saying cheap. Buy the property cheap, you add value, and usually the most simple way to add value is to do some kind of a refurb, and then you get the property revalued. Now, when you do the refurb, the idea is that you add value to the property, so when it's refinanced, it's refinanced against the higher value. If you do your due diligence, if you buy the right property, if you add enough value from the refurb, if you get the right mortgage product, then it's entirely possible that when you refinance the property, you'll be able to get all or most of your money back out again. Which means if you've got a limited pool of money, you can pretty much protect that pot of money and then you can carry it forward and you can do the whole thing again. That's how I built my portfolio. That's how Robert Mark, when they started, built their portfolios, how many investors build their portfolio by using the BRR model. So Suresh, can we still do this? Is this still a good thing to do and how do we do it quickly? Well, if you just think about what I've said, there's a number of variables there, aren't there? There's the price at which you buy the property. If you can buy the property cheap enough, it's gonna make it much easier to refinance the property at a higher value at a later date and get your money back out. Now, of course, you've got to be buying property genuinely at a cheap price which is provable as being cheap, if that makes sense. It's not just hoping that it's cheap. You actually know it's cheap because you're doing your due diligence. But interestingly, I was going through the Progressive Property Facebook group a while back, and there was a post about the BRR model, which somebody put up. And somebody was suggesting that in order for the BRR model to work, you need to buy your properties at least 25% BMV, 25% below market value. Great post, by the way. I'm not sure that I entirely agree with that, though. Why do I say that? Well, because if you think about it, there's about five different variables which are involved in this, and price is only one of them. So is it possible to buy a property at a price which isn't 25% below market value and still make the BRR model work? Well, yeah, absolutely. But what we'd have to do is we'd have to add more value on the refurb, and it mayn't be that you don't just do a refurb. Now, a refurb, in my world, is a very simple cosmetic overhaul, so that would probably be a new kitchen, a new bathroom, decorating and new carpets. At a push, if I had to, it might be adding heating if there was no heating, or if it was the wrong type of heating, replacing the heating. And at a push, if necessary, it might be something like replacing the windows. But the very basic level refurb, kitchen, bathroom, decks, carpets. And that should be enough if you buy the property at the right price to be able to persuade a valuer six months down the line, and yeah, we'll come back to that, six months down the line to refinance at a high enough value to be able to get the money back out. If, though, you're paying a higher price than you would like to, then the antidote to that, the way to balance that, so to speak, is maybe to add more value. So it may be that you do more than just the basic refurb. Maybe you add value in other ways, and I don't know what that might be. It depends on where you are in the country, because as I so often say at Masterclass, when we're doing the refurb section, something which may add value in London, for example, may not add any value at all out in the sticks where there's less pressures of population and where there's more land. So, for example, in where you operate, maybe adding a conservatory is going to add value. So maybe you do that.
It could be something as simple as dropping the curb and making a parking space in the front garden. Where I am, that won't make any difference at all to values, I wouldn't have thought. But if you can create a parking space in the southeast, then maybe that could add additional value over and above the refurb, which will make the BRR model work. So that could be one way. So in terms of speed sureish, you need to be thinking about all these different variables and how you can use them all to create a situation where you know that the value is gonna come around and then gonna give you the right valuation. Let's carry on with this. So we've thought about price and we've thought about adding value. What are the other variables? Well, the next variable is what mortgage product are you gonna be using? Now we tend to think that a typical buy-to-let mortgage is 75%. Why do we think that? Well, because it is, quite simply. But that's not the only type of mortgage product out there. Now, when I very first started, back in the dim and distant, I was very spoiled because the norm was an 85% product. Yeah, an 85% product was considered normal. Those days disappeared when the credit crunch came along. But 85% and 80% mortgage products are still available. You need to talk to your broker about it. Which brings me to the nub of the answer, really. Suresh, to get anything done quickly, you need to have the right people in your team. And one of the most important people that you can have in your team is a really, really good mortgage broker. Now, mortgage brokers are not all equal, and I don't want to offend any mortgage brokers. I'm sure that any mortgage broker who's listening to this podcast is a really, really good mortgage broker. But there are mortgage brokers out there who actually don't really understand property investing very much. I mean, I know that sounds a bit crazy because it's their bread and butter, but Maybe they don't do it for themselves, or maybe they just want to deal with a limited number of lenders and just fill in a few forms and have an easy life. What you need is a mortgage broker who fully understands what you're trying to do. And by the way, there's lots of mortgage brokers out there who will understand what you're trying to do and make sure that you have them in your team. Perhaps if anybody's listening to this, they could put a post up on the progressive community on the, on the Facebook group and actually say who they'd recommend as a mortgage broker, who, who they've used for the BRR thing, that would be really, really helpful for everybody and we could have maybe a thread going with lots of recommendations. There's probably threads like that out there already. If there is, maybe we could resurrect it and pull it back up to the top. Be a really useful resource. Because the right mortgage broker is going to help you to get the right finance, they're going to help you to get it as quickly as it is possible to get it. Because there's a lot of complexity around this. It's a, it, the question itself, you, you might, as I say, you might not have realised sort of just how much we sort of need to pull out of that. Because not every lender treats lending and their timescales in the same way. So let me go on to that. You ask whether you have to wait six months. Well, technically, yes, and I think what you're talking about is the six-month rule. So let's cover the six-month month rule. Now, you've probably heard about the six-month rule. If you've been investing for any length of time, you've probably been subjected to the six-month rule. But if you're new or you're wondering, let me just quickly tell you what it's all about. Basically, back in the day, when the credit crunch came, a lot of the lenders got a bit twitchy because prior to the credit crunch, there was what was known as same-day refinancing or same-day remortgaging. And essentially, without going into all the details of it, it meant that you could buy a property cheap, you could get a mortgage on the property to buy it, you could instantly refinance it at its real value, which was higher than the price you'd paid, and then you could pull out the extra money and you could do all that. If you had the right solicitors and brokers and banks in place, you could do all that on the same day. So you could refinance within minutes of buying it and get all of your money back out, which was great if you were using the tool properly, but a lot of people abused it. 
And when the credit crunch came and values began to fall, the banks suddenly realized that they'd been very generous with their money and they decided they weren't going to do that again. So they came up with this sort of arbitrary limit and they said basically, if you want to borrow money against a property, you've either got to have owned it for six months or it's going to be six months since you last mortgaged it. And that was the six month rule. Now, notice I said it's a rule, it's not a law. It was a guideline. I think it was a guideline from the Council of Mortgage Lenders. It's not a rule. So not all banks actually adhere to it or not all banks adhere to it totally. So some banks will still lend to you quicker than six months. I think Virgin, for example, will lend uh, within six months, but they won't lend on the enhanced value. They'll still only lend on the value of the property that you paid, plus an amount which covers the cost of your refurb. So not quite what we're after. It's a start, but it's not quite what we're after. Other banks just don't take any notice of it at all. Or some banks, particularly if you've got a good broker, remember my last point, you need a good broker, if they can pick up the phone to the underwriter at the bank, they might well be able to persuade some lenders that actually, I know we're refinancing it within six months, but there's really good reasons why we can justify this because we have genuinely increased the value by X percent or X thousands or X hundred thousand pounds. And if the bank can be persuaded, then they may well lend within the six months. But as a general rule, you have to assume that you're going to have to wait six months until you can refinance. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't buy the property with a mortgage. You can buy the property with a mortgage and BRR can work very well. You can use a buy-to-let mortgage to buy the property. You could even then go back to that lender who's lent you the money to buy the property to then top up the loan when you've done the refinancing. That can work. It depends on the bank. It doesn't work with all banks. There's a lot that we could talk about there because one of the things that which that would imply is that the valuer who valued the property when you bought it is going to come out and value the property when you refinance it. Now, depending upon what you've done to the property and how that valuer actually feels about their previous valuation, they may or may not value the property up or they may or may not value the property up to the right level, which is why many investors don't go back to the bank who they first bought with, they go to another bank and then they remortgage, pay off the first bank and keep the extra money from the second bank. That can work as well. There's ethical and moral questions around that. And again, I'm sure we could have a really good discussion about whether that's actually mortgage fraud if you knew you are going to do that, blah, blah, blah. I know lots of investors who do it. I know lots of banks who are party to it. They don't seem to worry. Some people suggest that they should or could. That's probably a discussion for another day. If you're worried about that, though, one way around that is either to use JV Finance to buy the property, which would work well, or to use a bridging loan to buy the property. Then after six months, you can refinance, pay off your JV partner, or pay off the bridging company. That would work as well. By the way, if you're wondering what a bridging loan is, again, maybe a subject for a future podcast, but it's basically a short-term loan, which you can use to bridge the purchase or to bridge the funding until you get proper conventional finance. So it's just a short-term loan, usually very expensive. So that's another variable. So yes, will you have to wait six months? Yeah, the chances are you probably will. Now, the thing is that when you're actually doing your refurb or when you're doing whatever it is you're using to add value to the property, you need to be starting to think about raising your finance at that point. So you wouldn't leave it until, you wouldn't leave your application for the next finance until the end of the six month period. You'd be talking to your broker from the day you buy the property and from the day the builder goes in, getting ready so that you can draw the next loan down, whether that be a further advance with the existing bank or a new source of lending, you'll be getting ready to draw that down as early as possible. 
and everything will be geared up to do that. And again, that's the advantage of having a really good team who are working with you. So just one very final thought on this. One thing which we all need to do, whether you're experienced or whether you're a beginner, is we need to be keeping an eye on the regs, rules and guidelines which surround financing at the moment, because it's changing constantly. 2017, all sorts of stuff happened. The Council of Mortgage Lenders and the Bank of England were getting lenders to do stuff which they hadn't previously been doing, which has made it a little bit harder to get a buy-to-let loan. Now, I'm not saying it's made it impossible. I'm not saying that it's harder in the sense that people who wouldn't have qualified now don't qualify, although that is probably true. Probably the main result of it is that it's made it perhaps take a little bit longer to get a loan, and it's made it even more important that you use a good broker who fully understands what's going on and who fully understands the policies that each individual lender use when they're deciding on a loan. There are still many, many, many lenders out there who are lending buy-to-let products, for example. I mean, there's about, I think, rough, rough count, 1,500 different buy-to-let products out there. There's no shortage of products. And there's, I would usually say to anybody who comes up to me and says, Peter, I'm not sure if I can get finance, I'd usually say, do you know what? There's probably a product out there which fits you. The thing is, though, you're not going to find it by trying to sort it out online for yourself. We'll think about this when I answer another question in a moment. You need a good broker. A good broker is the key, I think, to all of your future property success. Sometimes people say to me, well, Peter, should I get a broker who doesn't charge a fee? Wouldn't that be a better way of using my money if I don't have to pay my broker a fee? I would say, no, 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 pay your broker a fee because your broker is one of your best friends in your team. Your broker is one of the most important members of your team. And if you need to pay your broker and if you need to pay them handsomely, it's well worth it because they're going to get you the finance that you need. So Suresh, I hope that helps. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Great question. Thank you ever so much for that. What else have we got? Well, here's a question from Oren Sali. Hi, Oren. Thank you very much for contacting me. It says, hello, Peter. I enjoy listening to your podcasts on Progressive. Thank you, Oren. Good to know. Thank you so much. Please leave a review. It's a bit cheeky. By the way, anybody who's listening who does enjoy the podcast, if you could leave a review, that'd be great. Anyway, I enjoy listening to your podcast on Progressive. I'm interested in buying flat conversions and splitting titles. Can you talk a little on how to make a profit on splitting title? Do's and don'ts. Thank you very much, Oren. Great question. Well, let's start by what a title split actually is. And actually, this is going to be quite hard on a podcast because when I describe what a title split is, I usually wave my arms around a lot. I'm not sure why, because it probably doesn't help, but <laughs> it helps me to feel I'm getting the point across. Basically, a title split, how can we describe that? Well, let me give, it, give a simple example. We're probably all familiar with a house which is a freehold. Most houses are freehold. A house is a house and it sits on a plot of land and you buy the house freehold. Now, if you were to take that house and turn it into flats, the flats couldn't technically, I mean, we don't get into semantic arguments with lawyers on this, but to all intents and purposes, for us as lay, lay people, a flat can't have the freehold. So what would happen is, the house would still have a freehold envelope, but the two flats would have to have their own title, which would be a leasehold, it would be a long lease. So each flat would have a long lease title. So now you've got actually three different titles, maybe just two properties. You've got the freehold of the whole building, which is like the outside envelope, and then you've got 
a long lease on the flat downstairs and a long lease on the flat upstairs, assuming that you've taken a house and converted it into two flats. And going through the process of creating the new titles is what we mean by title splitting. So that would be a perfect example where you take a large residential property and make it into flats. Where I used to work as a young surveyor in southwest London around Wimbledon, all of the terraced houses in this particular part of Wimbledon were bought by developers back in the 70s and 80s and converted into pairs of flats. Each of those flats will now have a long leasehold interest and the house itself will still have the freehold envelope. Now, under current, I don't want to even get into all the stuff about leasehold reform and stuff, but the individual leaseholders can get together to own the freehold, so they could, you could have a confusing situation where the owners of the leasehold are also the owners of the freehold. All that kind of stuff happens as well. We don't need to get into that. What we're really talking about is the technicalities of converting property from one use to another. Now, whenever we're doing this, the do's and don'ts. Well, the do's and don'ts of this, there's so many actually, Oren, it's a great, great question. One of the things which I think we'll, we'll cover off first is, the f is financing, because I often hear would-be title splitters saying something like, I'm going to buy a property, I'm going to split it into X number of units, and then I'm going to refinance the individual units to get my money back out. Now, it's a great theory, but in practice, it's probably not quite so easy as that. Now, you need to check with your lawyer, you need to check with your mortgage broker, you need to talk to people who know about this kind of stuff. But you can't actually do that because there's a quirk in English law, a principle of law, which says you cannot split title for your own benefit. So what does that mean? Well, basically, if you take a property and you make it into... So let's say you use our example of the house which we're turning into two flats. Can you physically turn the house into two flats? Yes. Can you legally turn the house into two flats? Yes. Can you then refinance each property individually once you've split the title. Well, no, you cannot, because if that title is still in your name, you cannot do that. You cannot create a leasehold interest on the ground floor flat and you be the leaseholder, plus have a leasehold interest on the first floor flat and you be the leaseholder. So you cannot then refinance against the two separately. Why would you want to do that, by the way? Well, the theory is that if you can refinance each unit separately, you're going to get more money out because the sum of the two is greater than the whole. So the value of the property, for example, might have been 100,000 when it was a house. By turning it into flats, it may be worth 150,000, 75,000 pounds each. So if you could refinance against the two, you'd be able to get more money out. But you can't technically do it. Now, there are wriggly ways around this, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a bank and I'm not a mortgage broker, so you have to take your own advice on this. But it strikes me that a potential way of doing this is if you perhaps sold one of the properties to a partner, maybe a life partner, a spouse, and then they could refinance in their name. So you could have one in your name, they could refinance and own one in their name. Or maybe you could set up a limited company and sell one or both properties to a limited company. You could retain the freehold, the limited company could take on the leaseholds. I don't know, that could be a way around it. There are ways around it. Not really the place to go into all that sort of detail here, but I hope it gives you a few ideas. So I'd certainly be thinking about the finance, Oren. That's one thing you need to be thinking about. What else do we need to be thinking about? Well, certainly we need to be thinking about the rules, regulations, and laws that surround doing a title split. One thing you're undoubtedly gonna need 
is planning consent. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole realm of commercial conversions and all that kind of stuff where different rules apply, but you still, you, you still need, even with PDs, to put the paperwork into the local planning authority. That's going to happen. For something more simple, a bit like my house, which we're turning into flats, definitely need planning. I did one of these about 18 months ago. Put the planning application into the local authority. By the way, it doesn't have to be a complicated thing. Now, those of you who've been to Masterclass will have heard all about Mrs. Jones and how she helps me in my property business. Mrs. Jones, because she used to be a designer, I gave her a photo of the property and I gave her a rough floor plan, which I'd drawn out myself. And I said, can you do the plans for the planning application? And she kind of looked at me a bit askew and said, really? And I said, yeah, go on, give it a go. So Mrs. Jones, she actually drew the elevations and she drew where the front doors were going and the windows and all this kind of stuff. And she took the floor plans and she tidied them up. And I submitted those with my planning application. And guess what? It was fine. Absolutely fine. So I didn't have to get an architect involved or anything like that. Very straightforward job. Doesn't necessarily have to be expensive or complicated. It did what it needed to do. Interestingly, well, at least I think it's interesting. It's also a little bit annoying. The only thing which the planners actually got really excited about was whether I was going to provide a bin store. Can you believe it? That was the one thing which they got themselves into a real twist about. Because apparently, and if you've listened to my podcast about rants and local politicians, the local councillor for the area was very keen that everybody tidied up their gardens and had proper bin stores. And so that was the only thing that the planning department were really very concerned about. And they've got to be under a lot of pressure to provide a proper bin store. So there we go. So you need to think about planning, Oren. Going hand in hand with that, you'll also need to think about building rigs. You will need building regs. The local building inspector is going to have to come around and sign off at various stages of your conversion. What I found with my title split was one of the biggest jobs was actually complying with soundproofing. For those who've done that kind of conversion, you'll be nodding your heads and saying, yeah, I know where you're coming from with that. So I had to get my builder to put all this acoustic padding between the floors and all kinds of stuff, a new false ceiling with acoustic padding to make sure that the sound between the two new flats was completely deadened. And then I had to get an acoustic engineer in, which cost me about 700 quid, I think, to come and test with their sound gun to make sure that the sound wasn't going through the floors. So there's quite a lot of work involved in that. My builder was there working on that for quite some time, and that was probably the largest single cost of doing the refurb, was making sure that it complied with sound requirements under the building regs and everything. So you need to think about that for sure. Finally, what else do we need to think about, Oren? Well, we need to do our due diligence because, of course, we need to be very, very sure of our figures because there's absolutely no point, in my mind, in converting a property and doing a title split if, at the end of the day, we spend so much money on it that we actually don't make a profit or we don't increase the value. It seems to me a, a fairly pointless exercise, unless you can think of any other reason for doing it. Life's too short. Let's go and do something where we are going to make a margin. So make sure that you do your due diligence. Make sure that the figures are going to stack. Make sure you absolutely do know what the cost of doing the project is going to be. And make sure that you absolutely know what the rental value of the property is going to be if you're going to keep it and hold it and rent it out. Because again, the amount that you can later refinance on the property is going to be dependent upon the rental value as well. So those are the things which I'd be thinking about, Oren. I hope that helped you. Title splits can be very exciting. It doesn't just have to be houses turning into flats. I know that there are many members of the progressive community, for example, who go out and find houses with large gardens. 
That can be a great way of doing a title split. You can hive off the garden, hopefully get planning on it, and then hive that off under a separate title. That can become its own separate freehold, so you can keep the house and have that as a freehold, and then you can sell the garden, split the title, sell the garden as a separate freehold with planning, for example. And if you do it right, and if you know what you're doing, and depending on where you do it, you'll probably find that the value of the house which you retain may not even be affected by the fact that you've actually sold off the garden. In this day and age, actually, a lot of people don't really want large gardens. They can consider them to be hard work and they don't really want them. So it wouldn't necessarily reduce the value of the property you retain, or it may not reduce it by very much. So that can be a great way of doing title splits. All sorts of things are possible. So there we are. Hope that helped. Next question is from Manuel Pedrero Gonzalez. Hope I got your name right, man, uh, Manuel. And he says, hey, Peter, don't know if you remember me, but I was on Masterclass last year in November. Great to hear from you again, Manuel. Yeah, Masterclass. If you haven't been to Masterclass, come along to Masterclass. Myself, Dixie Nan, four days of intensive property training. Anyway, he says, I just wanted to say I'm really enjoying your podcast and finding it really interesting. So again, thank you very much, Manuel. If you fancy leaving a review wherever you listen to it, that'd be really good. So here's Manuel's questions. He says, numerous questions have been asked about JVs, joint ventures, and how to set them up. There's obviously the simple way, but it gets a bit more complicated when a partner comes on board and the banks are a bit tough on lending to this kind of arrangement, especially if you have limited experience. So is there any way you could cover the types of agreements one could enter into, like SPV, and the pitfalls or the advantages of setting up a separate limited company each time on a deal? Lots of confusion. If you could, this would be great. Brilliant. Manuel. Great question. Again, a bit like the other questions. There's actually so much to unpack there. So let's start. Let's start by Manuel's assertion that there's the simple way of structuring a JV. Now, actually, I have to say, just going off a slight tangent, one of my guiding principles is that if you can do something in an easy way, or if you can do something in a hard way, I would always choose easy, but then I am just naturally lazy. But it's a guiding principle of mine. By the same token, if there's a, a complicated way of doing something or a simple way of doing something, I'd always go for simple. So I'm not quite sure what Manuel means when he's talking about the simple way of setting up a JV, but I'm assuming that you mean if you have, for example, a JV partner who's going to make a loan for interest, a sort of simple loan arrangement. And that would certainly be the simplest way of structuring any JV. You find a property which you want to buy, you find a JV partner to lend you the money, the money comes to you, you buy the property in your name, you buy the property, you do whatever it is you do with the property, and at some point in the future you pay the JV partner back and you give them interest for their trouble. That would be the simplest way of structuring it. But there's things that we need to think about within that as well. What is the loan actually going to be used for? Now, at Progressive, at Masterclass, Manuel, you're at Masterclass, so you probably remember this, we talked about how to buy properties to use the buy, refurbish, refinance system, which we've talked about in an earlier question, and how we'd actually fund the initial purchase of the property. And I don't remember Dixie, one of my co-trainer, was talking about using Auntie Mabel's money. If Auntie Mabel is lending you 100% of the purchase price, it is entirely possible that if you do the right kind of refurb and add the right sort of value, 
six months after you buy the property with Auntie Mabel's money, you could then go to a bank, you could then refinance the property, and you could pay Auntie Mabel back. And I'm not aware of any bank who'd have a particular problem with that. As long as they understood exactly what had happened, it wouldn't be a concern to them that it was you'd purchase the property with Auntie Mabel's money. All they'd be looking for is to make sure there's enough equity in the property once you've refinanced it for them to have their buffer, which will be built in with their loan to value anyway. So that's okay. Where you might come to some difficulties is if, for example, the loan, even if it's just a simple loan just for simple interest, if the loan was to pay purely for the deposit. Because here's one of the, the ironies, one of the sort of the contradictions in property. If you borrowed less from Auntie Mabel, and you only borrowed instead of 100% of the purchase price, but you only borrowed, say, 25% of the purchase price, which you were going to use as a deposit, the balance between what the bank will lend you and the purchase price, if you used Auntie Mabel's money, it's probable that the banks actually wouldn't like that. Strange, isn't it? Because they're quite happy for you to borrow 100% of Auntie Mabel, but not 25%. Because this is what they're worried about. They're worried about where the deposit's going to come from. They want to know that you've got some skin in the game. I guess from their point of view, if you borrow 100% from Auntie Mabel and then refinance six months later, the skin in the game for you is the equity in the property, which you're effectively putting up as your stake. If you borrow at day one 25% from Auntie Mabel, you haven't actually really got anything in the game. And maybe that's what they're trying to avoid. So if you were to borrow, even on a simple JV agreement, to then use that money as a deposit, banks probably wouldn't like that. Now, there is a proviso to that. If the money came from a close relative, and if that money originates within the UK, they will probably accept that. The definition of close relative, though, is going to vary from bank to bank. Maybe some banks will allow Auntie Mabel. Others prefer it to be parents or grandparents. Talk to your broker. Again, so often the answer to all these questions is get a good broker, because a good broker who's batting your corner, fighting your corner, they're going to make a massive difference to your property empire and going to help you get money which you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So if I was talking about simple JV arrangements, Manuel, I'd be thinking about what's the money going to be used for. But let's think about what the alternative is to a simple JV. Well, I suppose the alternative to a simple JV is a complex JV. And what that means in our world is having a partner, a JV partner, who's going to benefit from an equity share or a share of the profits. In other words, it's any arrangement which isn't just an arrangement for a simple loan. So for example, here I am, I'm in the studio with Harry. Harry's recording me. Supposing Harry was my JV partner. If Harry lent me the money and he only charged me interest and he had no other stake in the deal, that would be perfectly fine. But if Harry said, Peter, I want to do a deal with you, I want to do a JV with you, let's split the profits 50-50, suddenly that changes everything. Because under regs, FCA 13.3, I think it is, about three years ago, the FCA who control money, the Financial Conduct Authority, they control loans and mortgage lending and all that kind of stuff and banking. They said, basically, if you do any arrangement which is anything other than a simple loan, you can only do that with somebody who's deemed to be either a high net worth individual or a sophisticated investor. At the time, they also changed things because prior to FC 13.3, you could ask somebody to sign a bit of paper 
confirming that they were a high net worth individual or a sophisticated investor. But the FCA said, no, 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 we're not going to accept this anymore. What we want now is for you to keep documentary evidence in an easily accessible place where you can prove that you know whether they are high net worth or sophisticated. So what does this mean? Well, it means, in, a, in effect, if Harry offered me that deal, I'd have to say, Harry, that's great. Can you prove to me that you're high net worth or a sophisticated investor? And he'd have to produce something. Now, let's have a think about what the definition of a high net worth individual or sophisticated investor actually is and, and see what proof Harry's going to have to give me. Harry's looking at me in a very interested way now, by the way, wondering if I'm going to actually get my hands on his money. I'll let you know in a future podcast. So a high net worth individual, as I understand it, I'm not going to go through the full definition, you can Google this, but in, a, in effect, a high net worth individual is somebody who earns more than £100,000 a year, or they've got more than £250,000 worth of assets, and those assets are deemed not to be something like their house, it's not their pension, it's not insurance policies, it's got to be stuff like investment properties with equity, or, or shares, or gold, whatever. £250,000 worth of assets. A sophisticated investor, on the other hand, is basically somebody who's been employed in the financial services industry, somebody who's been a director of a business with a turnover of more than a million quid, somebody who's made, I seem to remember, two investments in the last couple of years in investments other than the stock market, words to that effect. So pretty much, as I say, Google the definition, you'll find it. Somebody who really knows what they're doing with money, I guess. Somebody who's used to being an investor. Now, there are a few things which are very interesting about this. Because the regs, the guidelines, don't actually specify, for example, what those two investments are in, or should be in, or even how much should be invested. So there is an argument, potentially, and if you're an IFA, you know, start a thread on the Facebook group and tell us what you think. But there is an argument that putting two lots of 10 quid onto a peer-to-peer -peer funding site, for example, could then qualify somebody as being a sophisticated investor. It doesn't say that it doesn't. Until all this stuff goes to court and it's all tested in front of a judge, which it may or may not ever be, we'll never really know. Now, the point is this. We could get very, very overexcited about it, Manuel. I'm not going to get overexcited about it because, in reality, this is what I think. Those are the sorts of people who we should be approaching to be our JV partners anyway. Because surely it's the high net worth individuals and the sophisticated investors, they're going to have all the money. So you don't want to go to somebody who's skint and try and borrow their last 10 quid. You want to go to somebody who's got the money. And somebody who's got the money, and if they're a sophisticated investor, if they're a high net worth individual, are they going to be more aligned with your values and understand what you're trying to do and understand how you're trying to invest the money? Absolutely. So they're probably going to be far less trouble in your life than somebody who lends you their last five grand. The person who lends you their last five grand who's been keeping it in a tin under the bed is going to be so worried about what you're doing with that five grand. They're going to be on the phone the whole time making sure that you're looking after it. Whereas a sophisticated investor or a high net worth individual is going to understand what you're doing and they're going to be a much easier JV partner to work with, not least because they've got the money. So don't worry about it. Those are the people we want anyway. So in terms of complexity and simple, the fact that it's deemed complex and under Manuel's definition, maybe that's what you're thinking, Manuel, those are the people who I'd be going for anyway. So that's fine. I would have no qualms about that. How do we structure it? Well, ultimately, every JV is down to negotiation between the two parties. I'm looking at Harry, wondering what terms he wants. 
And I'd say to him, Harry, what's important to you in a JV? And Harry would tell me, well, Peter, it's security. Peter, it's trust. Peter, I'm not really bothered about that, it's the return. Or Peter, I just need to know that I can exit the deal whenever I need to exit it. And those might be the things which I then start to formulate my JV proposal around, making sure that the JV proposal actually covers the things that Harry is interested in. Now, Manuel, you mentioned the use of SPVs. So let's talk about that. And you talked about, should we be setting up a separate SPV for each deal we do? That's a great question. Let me start by covering what an SPV actually is, because I hear so many people who are obviously very confused about an SPV. When I hear people talking about SPV, which stands for Special Purpose Vehicle, you would almost think from the way they're describing it that it's like an entity in its own right. Like, for example, a lot of people have heard of LLPs, Limited Liability Partnerships. Pretty much everybody's heard of limited companies. And then the next entity is an SPV. But no, it doesn't work like that. An SPV is not a separate entity. If you go to company's house and you do a search for SPVs, you're not going to find anything. The limited company or the limited liability partnership, and in our world, we're mainly talking about limited companies, so we're going to stick with that for the purposes of this podcast. It's a limited company which is being used for a special purpose. Now, let me try and explain that. The special purpose it's being used for is just to buy property. The reason why banks particularly like SPVs is because what they don't want is this. They don't want, for example, let's say, for example, this is totally fictitious because I'm not, but let's just imagine for a moment that I started a business 20 years ago in the textile industry. So I'm Peter the textile man, but I decide that I want to start investing some of my profits into property. So I go to the bank and I say, I've got this company which does textiles, I want to buy properties and I'm going to use the income from that company and buy the properties into my company. Is that okay? The banks are going to say no. Why are they going to say no? Because the company's been set up to deal in textiles. If I go to the bank and say, look, I'm Peter and I make my money in textiles and I want to get into property and I've set up a new limited company and this limited company hasn't traded at all, it's got no assets, it's got no income, but I want to buy properties into that limited company, is that okay? They'll say, yes, that's absolutely fine. Why? Because that limited company is the SPV. That is the special purpose vehicle. So special purpose vehicle isn't a particular type of entity. It's just a company that we set up for the purposes of owning our property portfolio. Now, there's going to be a lot of you thinking, oh, I can't really get my head around this. Why would a bank lend to a limited company that hasn't actually traded, that hasn't got any assets, which hasn't got any income. Well, first of all, they want to keep everything nice and clean and tidy. Ultimately, any bank, all they're interested in, if they're going to lend you money, is how easy it's going to be to get that money back if you make a mess of it. Don't want to be so blunt about it. Let's not be negative from the start, but let's be real. Ultimately, that's all the bank are interested in. How easy is it going to be for them to actually wrap things up and sort things out if you make a mess of it? If all the properties were being owned in my fictitious textile company, it would be a nightmare if I default on the mortgages because they've got to unravel it all from an existing business and there may be other liabilities and that business has got liabilities to suppliers and vendors and buyers and all sorts of people. It'd be a nightmare, so they want to keep it nice and simple. 
So you might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, Peter, but how do they decide whether they're going to lend? Well, in my world, which is buy to let, and if you come on Masterclass, we talk about this at Masterclass, we even get a broker in to come and talk to you about it on the Friday afternoon. But in our world, this is how it works. I want to buy a buy to let property and I want to do it through a limited company. Why do I want to do it through a limited company? Because I've heard that it's the most tax efficient way of doing it since section 24, fair enough. So the bank will say to you, that's great, we're very happy to lend you the money, but this is how we're going to vet the deal, this is how I'm going to vet you, and so I'm going to vet the company. Because the company hasn't traded, and because the company doesn't have any assets, and because the company doesn't have any income, we're going to look at you, and your assets, and your income, and we're going to look at the deal, we're going to look at the property that you're buying, we're going to make sure that the rent stacks up on the property that you're buying. If the rent stacks up, if the valuer ticks off the price and the value, and comes back with a favourable report, and if you've got the right amount of income, and if you've owned your own home, and if you've got the right assets, then your company can buy the property, and we'll lend the money to the company. Now, one thing which they will want is they will want you to A, be a director of the company, which is fair enough, it's your company, why would you not be? And B, they'll want you to give a personal guarantee. Now, I've heard, and I think this is just a misunderstanding, to be honest, but I've heard People say when they've heard that they should give a guarantee or they'll be required to give a personal guarantee, say things like, oh, well, there we are, that's why I don't want to get into property. I don't want to give personal guarantee on property like that. I thought limited company meant that I wouldn't have to have any liability. Yes, that's true. You will have to give the guarantee, and it means that obviously if anything happens, you've got to underwrite the loan. But just think of it this way. If you weren't buying the property through a limited company and if you were buying it in your own name, is there not an implicit and explicit guarantee that you're going to repay the loan because the loan's in your name? It is. To me, I don't think it makes any difference at all. If you take out a buy-to-let mortgage in your name, you've got to repay it. If you take out a buy-to-let mortgage in the name of your company, and you guarantee it, it's no different. You've still got to repay it. I don't think it makes any difference, and I can't understand why people say, well, that's why I'm not going to get into property. It doesn't make any difference. Just bite the bullet and go for it. You're buying the right properties anyway. If you're getting yourself educated, you're doing your due diligence, you're only buying properties which have good assets, you're buying them in the right location, you're doing a refurb, you're adding value, you're, getting, you're making sure that the, there's a rental market before you buy them so that you can rent them out. All is good. You have to trust yourself on this. This is what you're paying for your education for. Go and do it. Don't let that be a stumbling block. So that's why the whole notion of the SPV has really come about. So Manuel's question, should we set up an SPV for every deal? Well, if I was buying properties in my name alone, without a JV partner, then no. I have a limited company. My limited company has dozens of properties in its ownership. I haven't set up a limited company for each individual property. I can't think for most of us that there's any advantage in actually setting up a limited company like that for each individual property. Nope, can't think of many. There may be in particular circumstances, but for most of us, one company owning multiple properties, that's the way forward. But if we're doing this as a deal with individual JV partners, then yes, there is a case maybe for setting up a different company with different JV partners. Now that would make a sense, separating it out. The alternative is just to have one company and to be issuing shares and having different shareholders coming in and out. That could be a little bit messy. 
So yeah, under some circumstances, Manuel, I can see that different entities to own properties owned with different JV partners could be a good thing. Thing is though, I wouldn't particularly want to have, it all depends what I was doing, it's all about scale and degree. This is just my personal views on it, you may disagree, it may work for you doing it a different way, but personally I wouldn't want to buy, say, one buy-to-let property with a JV partner and then put it into a limited company and then move on and buy one more buy-to-let property with another JV partner and put it into another limited company. I'd like to think that if I was going to do stuff with a JV partner that would be like buying multiple properties and it'd make it worthwhile actually setting up the entities and persuading the bank to lend to me. But that's got to be your personal view. Now I was talking to an investor who I know very well a few months back who has now started almost collecting JV partners and setting up limited companies. He's now setting up his third limited company and those limited companies deal exclusively with different JV partners and he's following exactly that model but he's not doing it with one property per company. He's looking to grow and grow and grow each company over the next 10-15 years with his JV partners using the stuff that we teach at Progressive, using the BRR model, rolling the money back in, building the portfolio and building separate limited companies with his JV partners. JV partners have funded the initial seed capital as it were, he's going to grow it and grow each limited company into hopefully over the next 15, 20 years, major property companies. So Manuel, that's a great question. I hope that helped and I hope it clarifies some of those points. If you've still got other concerns and questions, then obviously stick a post up on the Progressive Facebook group and I'm sure there'll be lots of people with other experiences to be able to give their two pennies worth, which will help you as well. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this session, answering a few questions. As I say, for those of you who sent me questions and I've lost them, I'm ever so sorry. But going forward, tag me in on Facebook and hopefully it'll all be there for everybody to see forever and I'll come back to you at some point, hopefully. If you have any ideas for podcasts, do get back to, to us. Let us know what you think you need to know about and we'll see if it's going to help everybody and we may or may not do a podcast on it. And if you want to know more about me, Peter Jones, well, you can find me at my website, thepropertyteacher.co.uk, all one word, thepropertyteacher.co.uk, or you can find me on Facebook under The Property Teacher. Be good to see you. Say hello. Oh, and by the way, before I forget, if you could leave a review, I've mentioned it a couple of times in this podcast already, but if you are enjoying it, and I hope you are, if you could leave a review, and make sure you leave the review on the application you downloaded it from. So, for example, if you get your podcast from iTunes, if you could leave a review on iTunes, or if you get it from Stitcher, if you could leave a review on Stitcher, well, that'd be very much appreciated. It'd be great to get your review and to get your feedback. Until next time, here's to successful property investing. <laughs>